Hello everyone and welcome to another First Chapter Fridays with the Augusta County Library. Today's featured book is The Girl Who Drank the Moon by Kelly Barnhill. This book won the 2017 Newbery Medal and follows the story of a young girl named Luna. As a baby, Luna was rescued by a witch and accidentally gifted with magic after being fed moonlight. As her magic starts to surface, Luna must learn how to manage it. And since chapter one of this story is so short, you'll get to enjoy the added bonus of chapter two. So without further ado, here is The Girl Who Drank the Moon. Chapter one, in which a story is told. Yes, there is a witch in the woods. There has always been a witch. Will you stop your fidgeting for once? My stars, I have never seen such a fidgety child. No, sweetheart, I have not seen her. No one has, not for ages. We've taken steps so that we will never see her. Terrible steps. Don't make me say it, you already know anyway. Oh, I don't know, darling. No one knows why she wants children. We don't know why she insists that it must always be the very youngest among us. It's not as though we could just ask her. She hasn't been seen. We make sure that she will not be seen. Of course she exists. What a question. Look at the woods, so dangerous. Poisonous smoke and sinkholes and boiling geysers and terrible dangers every which way. Do you think it is so by accident? Rubbish. It was the witch. And if we don't do as she says, what will become of us? You really need me to explain it? I'd rather not. Oh, hush now, don't cry. It's not as though the Council of Elders is coming for you, now is it? You're far too old. From our family? Yes, dearest, ever so long ago, before you were born, he was a beautiful boy. Now finish your supper and see to your chores. We'll all be up early tomorrow. The day of sacrifice waits for no one, and we must all be present to thank the child who will save us for one more year. Your brother? How could I fight for him? If I had, the witch would have killed us all, and then where would we be? Sacrifice one or sacrifice all, that is the way of the world. We couldn't change it if we tried. Enough questions, off with you, fool child. Chapter two, in which an unfortunate woman goes mad. Grand Elder Garland took his time that morning. The day of sacrifice only came once a year after all, and he liked to look his best during the sober procession to the cursed house and during the somber retreat. He encouraged the other elders to do the same. It was important to give the populace a show. He carefully dabbed rouge on his sagging cheeks and lined his eyes with thick streaks of coal. He checked his teeth in the mirror, ensuring they were free of debris or goop. He loved that mirror. It was the only one in the protectorate. Nothing gave Garland more pleasure than the possession of a thing that was unique unto him. He liked being special. The Grand Elder had ever so many possessions that were unique in the protectorate. It was one of the perks of the job. The protectorate, called the Cattail Kingdom by some and the City of Sorrows by others, was sandwiched between a treacherous forest on one side and an enormous bog on the other. Most people in the protectorate drew their livelihoods from the bog. There was a future in bog walking, mothers told their children. Not much of a future, you understand, but it was better than nothing. The bog was full of xeran shoots in the spring and xeran flowers in the summer and xeran bulbs in the fall in addition to a wide array of medicinal and borderline magical plants that could be harvested, prepared, treated, and sold to the traders from the other side of the forest, who in turn transported the fruits of the bog to the free cities far away. The forest itself was terribly dangerous and navigable only by the road, and the elders owned that road. Which is to say that Grand Elder Garland owned the road, 
and the other elders had their cut. The elders owned the bog, too, and the orchards, and the houses, and the market squares, even the garden plots. This is why the families of the protectorate made their shoes out of reeds. This was why, in lean times, they fed their children the thick, rich broth of the bog, hoping that the bog would make them strong. This was why the elders and their families grew big and strong and rosy-cheeked on beef and butter and beer. The door knocked. Enter, Grand Elder Gerland mumbled as he adjusted the drape of his robe. It was Antane, his nephew. An elder in training, but only because Gerland, in a moment of weakness, had promised the ridiculous boy's more ridiculous mother. But that was unkind. Antane was a nice enough young man, nearly 13. He was a hard worker and a quick study. He was good with numbers and clever with his hands, and could build a comfortable bench for a tired elder as quick as breathing. And, despite himself, Gerland had developed an inexplicable and growing fondness for the boy. But, Antane had big ideas, grand notions, and questions. Gerland furrowed his brow. Antane was, how could he put it, overly keen. If this kept up, he'd have to be dealt with, blood or no. The thought of it weighed upon Gerland's heart like a stone. Uncle Gerland! Antane nearly bowled his uncle over with his insufferable enthusiasm. Calm yourself, boy, the elder snapped. This is a solemn occasion. The boy calmed visibly, his eager, dog-like face tilted toward the ground. Gerland resisted the urge to pat him gently on the head. I have been sent, Antane continued in a mostly soft voice, to tell you that the other elders are ready, and all the populace waits along the route. Everyone is accounted for. Each one? There are no shirkers? After last year, I doubt there will ever be again, Antane said with a shudder. Pity. Gerland checked his mirror again, touching up his rouge. He rather enjoyed teaching the occasional lesson to the citizens of the Protectorate. It clarified things. He tapped the sagging folds under his chin and frowned. Well, nephew, he said with an artful swish of his robes, one that had taken him over a decade to perfect. Let us be off. The baby isn't going to sacrifice itself, after all. And he flowed into the street with Antane stumbling at his heels. Normally, the day of sacrifice came and went with all the pomp and gravity that it ought. The children were given over without protest. Their numb families mourned in silence with pots of stew and nourishing foods heaped into their kitchens, while the comforting arms of neighbors circled around them to ease their bereavement. Normally, no one broke the rules, but not this time. Grand Elder Gerland pressed his lips into a frown. He could hear the mothers howling before the procession turned onto the final street. The citizens began to shift uncomfortably where they stood. When they arrived at the family's house, an astonishing sight met the Council of Elders. A man with a scratched up face and a swollen lower lip and bloody bald spots across his skull where his hair had been torn out in clumps met them at the door. He tried to smile, but his tongue went instinctively to the gap where a tooth had just recently been. He sucked in his lips and attempted to bow instead. I am sorry, sirs, said the man, the father presumably. I don't know what has gotten into her. It's like she's gone mad. From the rafters above them, a woman screeched and howled as the elders entered the house. Her shiny black hair flew about her head like a nest of long, writhing snakes. She hissed and spat like a cornered animal. She clung to the ceiling beams with one arm and one leg while holding a baby tightly against her breast with the other arm. Get out, she screamed. You cannot have her. I spit on your faces and curse your names. 
Leave my home at once or I shall tear out your eyes and throw them to the crows. The elders stared at her open-mouthed. They couldn't believe it. No one fought for a doomed child. It simply wasn't done. Antane alone began to cry. He did his best to hide it from the adults in the room. Gerland, thinking fast, affixed a kindly expression on his craggy face. He turned his palms towards the mother to show her that he meant no harm. He gritted his teeth behind his smile. All this kindness was nearly killing him. We are not taking her at all, my poor misguided girl, Gerland said in his most patient voice. The witch is taking her. We are simply doing as we're told. The mother made a guttural sound, deep in her chest like an angry bear. Gerland laid his hand on the shoulder of the perplexed husband and gave a gentle squeeze. It appears, my good fellow, that you are right. Your wife has gone mad. He did his best to cover his rage with a facade of concern. A rare case, of course, but not without precedent. We must respond with compassion. She needs care, not blame. Liar, the woman spat. The child began to cry and the woman climbed even higher, putting each foot on parallel rafters and bracing her back against the slope of the roof, trying to position herself in a way that she could remain out of reach while she nursed the baby. The child calmed instantly. If you take her, she said with a growl, I will find her. I will find her and take her back, you see if I won't. And face the witch, Gerland laughed. All on your own, oh, you pathetic lost soul. His voice was honey, but his face was a glowing ember. Grief has made you lose your senses. The shock has shattered your poor mind. No matter, we shall heal you, dear, as best we can. Guards, he snapped his fingers and armed guards poured into the room. They were a special unit provided as always by the Sisters of the Star. They wore bows and arrows slung across their backs and short, sharp swords sheathed at their belts. Their long braided hair looped around their waists where it was cinched tight, a testament to their years of contemplation and combat training at the top of the tower. Their faces were implacable as stones and the elders, despite their power and stature, edged away from them. The sisters were a frightening force not to be trifled with. Remove the child from the lunatic's clutches and escort the poor deer to the tower, Gerland ordered. He glared at the mother in the rafters who had gone suddenly very pale. The sisters of the stars know what to do with broken minds, my dear. I'm sure it hardly hurts at all. The guard was efficient, calm, and utterly ruthless. The mother didn't stand a chance. Within moments, she was bound, hobbled, and carried away. Her howls echoed through the silent town, ending suddenly when the tower's great wooden doors slammed shut, locking her inside. The baby, on the other hand, once transferred into the arms of the Grand Elder, whimpered briefly and then turned her attention to the sagging face in front of her, all wobbles and creases and folds. She had a solemn look to her, calm, skeptical, and intense, making it difficult for Gerland to look away. She had black curls and black eyes. Luminous skin like polished amber. In the center of her forehead, she had a birthmark in the shape of a crescent moon. The mother had a similar mark. Common Laura insisted that such people were special. Gerland disliked Laura as a general rule, and he certainly disliked it when citizens of the Protectorate got it in their heads to think themselves better than they were. He deepened his frown and leaned in close, wrinkling his brow. The baby stuck out her tongue. Horrible child, Gerland thought. Gentlemen, he said with all the ceremony he could muster, it is time. 
The baby chose this particular moment to let loose a large, warm, wet stain across the front of Gerlin's robes. He pretended not to notice, but inwardly, he fumed. She had done it on purpose. He was sure of it. What a revolting baby. The procession was, as usual, somber, slow, and insufferably plodding. Gerlin felt he might go mad with impatience. Once the protectorate's gates closed behind them, though, and the citizens returned with their melancholy broods of children to their drab little homes, the elders quickened their pace. But why are we running, uncle? Antane asked. Hush, boy, Gerlin hissed, and keep up. No one liked being in the forest, away from the road, not even the elders, not even Gerland. The area just outside the protectorate walls was safe enough, in theory, but everyone knew someone who had accidentally wandered too far and fell into a sinkhole, or stepped in a mud pot, boiling off most of their skin, or wandered into a swale where the air was bad and never returned. The forest was dangerous. They followed a winding trail to the small hollow surrounded by five ancient trees, known as the Witch's Handmaidens, or six. Didn't it used to be five? Gerland glared at the trees, counted them again, and shook his head. There were six. No matter. The forest was just getting to him. Those trees were almost as old as the world, after all. The space inside the ring of trees was mossy and soft, and the elders laid the child upon it, doing their best not to look at her. They had turned their backs on the baby and started to hurry away when their youngest member cleared his throat. So, we just leave her here? Antane asked. That's how it's done? Yes, nephew, Gerland said. That is how it's done. He felt a sudden wave of fatigue settling on his shoulders like an ox's yoke. He felt his spine start to sag. Antane pinched his neck, a nervous habit that he couldn't break. Shouldn't we wait for the witch to arrive? The other elders fell into an uncomfortable silence. Come again, Elder Raspin, the most decrepit of the elders, asked. Well, surely, Antane's voice trailed off. Surely we must wait for the witch, he said quietly. What would become of us if wild animals came first and carried her off? The other elders stared at the grand elder, their lips tight. Fortunately, nephew, he said quickly, leading the boy away, that has never been a problem. But. Antane said, pinching his neck again so hard he left a mark. But nothing, Gerland said, a firm hand on the boy's back, striding quickly down the well-trodden path. And one by one, the elders filed out, leaving the baby behind. They left knowing, all but Antane, that it was not a matter of if the child were eaten by animals, but rather that she surely would be. They left her knowing that there surely wasn't a witch. There never had been a witch. There were only a dangerous forest and a single road and a thin grip on a life that the elders had enjoyed for generations. The witch, that is the belief in her, made for a frightened people, a subdued people, a compliant people who lived their lives in a saddened haze, the clouds of their grief numbing their senses and dampening their minds. It was terribly convenient for the elders' unencumbered rule. Unpleasant too, of course, but that couldn't be helped. They heard the child whimper as they trampled through the trees, but the whimpering soon gave way to the swamp sighs and bird song and the woody creaking of trees throughout the forest. And each elder felt as sure as sure could be that the child wouldn't live to see the morning and that they would never hear her, never see her, never think of her again. They thought she was gone forever. They were wrong, of course. If you're interested in reading the rest of The Girl Who Drank the Moon by Kelly Barnhill, 
visit www.valleylibraries.org. Thank you for joining us for First Chapter Fridays this week, and we hope you'll be back next week as well.